Yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay, let me pray for us, and we will get started. Oh, Father, tonight, uh, every night, I certainly need your spirit to communicate your word to your people, uh, but no more uh, important than he communicated tonight. Uh, words cannot do justice uh, to your word and to what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you uh, communicate to each person here this evening, uh, communicate to their minds and to their hearts and to their spirits. Uh, these things are spiritually appraised and understood. Would you help each one of us to um, not only understand, but to take it in? And in taking it in and believing you, uh, would it change our lives? We pray that you do that, please, uh, through your word um, and through your spirit. I pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to do a little mini-series here in Romans, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. If you've been through this before, this will be a great refresher. If you've never been through it before, it will go too fast, and you'll have to go back over it during the week, uh, but that's okay. Call Laurie, she can straighten you out. 1 Corinthians, I told you uh, that the children of Israel's journey and their geography, uh, there are spiritual lessons in it for us, which is why we're jumping from Joshua into Romans. And you, some of you, because you've been through this before, you say, aha, I know this. Some of you, this is uh, your first time through. You should be like the Bereans, and you should say, Bill, where do you find something in the Bible that tells you you can do that? Good question. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first 11 verses. Let me read it out of the New Living Translation. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. He says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the Scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and then were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. 
their journey and their geography have spiritual lessons for us. They really happen to them. I'm not saying that. They really happen to them. But there are spiritual lessons and illustrations from their journey and the geography that we can pick up on and learn from. And Paul listed quite a few of them in this 1 Corinthians passage. So that's my, um, mm, that's my Bible justification for why we're doing what we're doing. Now we're going to be in Romans 5. What's the context for Romans 5? It's Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4. That's the context for Romans 5. You say, well, show me, give me another example of this journey and geography thing. Okay, I will. Uh, besides, we looked at the little thing, that the 12 stones they built in the middle of the river. They got covered up with water, and there was the identical one built on the other side, and that's where they came out, and there was new uh, grain, right, new energy to live in the promised land as before. Let me remind you who led the children of Israel into the promised land. It was not Moses. Now you say, well, yeah, that's because he got disciplined. That's true. What does Moses represent? The law. Our greater Joshua leads us into the promised land just as the original Joshua led the people into the promised land. We get in trouble when we try to make Moses lead us into the promised land. And I hope I can show you that this evening. So, living in the promised land. What do I mean by that? Promised land, in quotes. We desire to walk with God in newness of life. But instead, much of the time we seem to live beneath our new life rather than according to our new life. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the illustration of, like, Harry and William, both royals, one living perhaps beneath his stature, the other living according to it. We seem to wander around in the spiritually dry and dusty wilderness of self-effort rather than living in the promised land of the abundant life. Was Jesus lying in John 10.10? Let's say no. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Is that true? Is that, you don't, don't answer that question. Don't raise your hands. Is that true in your life right now? Do you say, I am living the abundant life that Jesus came to give me? And if you say, hmm, I'm not sure I am, then tonight is your night. We seem to wander around and not get to where God wants us to be. We seem to spend much of our time flailing and failing against sin, boxing the air, as Paul talked about. We get frustrated and feel like giving up. We, can increase, we feel increasingly separated from God because we feel we're just not measuring up. We know there must be another way. 
How do we live in the promised land? How do we cross the river? How do we get across? Well, what we need to do is ask some people who have been there. They've gotten to the other side. Those who've crossed the river have settled the answers to three questions and then live in light of those answers. Because here's what's true. You and I behave as we behave because we believe as we believe. What Paul wants to do in Romans is change the way you believe. Because when you change the way you believe, it will change the way you behave. Three questions. First, how does God see me really? Second question, how do I overcome deliberate sin? Third question, how do I pursue holiness? Joshua has given us a picture. Paul comes along in Romans and gives us the theology that was pictured way back then. So tonight we're going to look at some theology. We're going to look at Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 over the next four weeks or four meeting times. Five, six, seven, and eight. Tonight we're going to talk about chapter five. Chapter five, the theological term is justification. In six, seven, and eight, the word will be sanctification. Where we're headed is at the end of Romans eight, that those whom God did all these things, he also glorified. I don't know about you. I don't feel glorified yet. Do you? But God says it's a package deal. Those whom He justified, He is also going to glorify. If He's done the first one, He will complete the second one. It's already a done deal in the mind of God. You say, don't know that I believe you, Bill. Very good. Romans chapter 8. Let's see. Let's go down chapter 8. Let's go down to uh, 29. 828 you're very familiar with. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. For God knew His people in advance. And he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having, and having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. For you non-English majors, this is a past perfect, which means there's an event or a circumstance in the past that has continuing results to the present or even future. Those whom God did all these things, He will also glorify. 
It is a done deal. And Paul's going to talk about this again in chapter 5. What we're talking about tonight is justification. It's the beginning of our journey with God. It has to do with paying the penalty for sin. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 have to do with the power of sin is broken. And Paul's going to tell us about that. Chapter 5 has to do with our position. Chapter 6, 7, and 8 has to do with our progress. Chapter 5 is about Christ died for us. Chapter 6, we died with Christ to sin. Chapter 7, we died to the law. Chapter 8, we walk in the Spirit. Chapter 5 talks about our new position, our new standing, and our new privileges. 6, 7, and 8. We died to sin as a master. We died to our own self-effort, and we are transformed by the Spirit. This little mini-series in Romans, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. But we have to begin at the beginning. Chapter 5, how does God see me? Really? The context for Romans 5 is, of course... Romans 1 through 4. Uh, if you haven't, you, you only had to read chapter 5. Hopefully you've read the whole book, but hopefully you've read 1 through 4 before. And we find out in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel or of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work. Saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news, this gospel tells us how God makes us right in His sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the Scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. He starts off telling us what this book is about. This book is about the righteousness that comes through faith. This book is about justification as a beginning point. So he walks through chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, and he talks about why everyone was lost, why everyone needs what God is trying to provide. And so in 1 through 4, God justifies sinners who believe. That's Chapters 2, 3, and 4. How does God justify sinners who believe? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in chapter 4, his great example of this is Abraham. Remember Abraham? Why did God justify him and declare him righteous? Because he, God said, look up at the stars in the sky, count them if you can. Abraham believed God, and God says it got credited to him as righteousness. What did Abraham do? Nothing. He believed God. Paul is saying, guess what? <laughs> Same thing. Abraham, the law hadn't even been given yet. How could Abraham have followed the law and gained his own righteousness? He couldn't have. This is his point in chapter 4. Therefore, 
He believed God and God counted it, reckoned it to him as righteousness. What a great, this is, the, this is part of what the Reformation was fought about, are these chapters right here. You want to know where, our, where does our root go back as Protestants? It goes right back here. Great, great stuff. Chapters 1 through 4, God justifies sinners who believe. What does this mean? There is a wonderful organization of which I was a part, and the term justification came up, and it was said, just as if I'd never sinned. Wrong. That is wrong. This is what justification is. Justification, a legal declaration by which God declares the guilty sinner righteous by imputing Christ's righteousness to his account. Just as if I'd never sinned only takes care of 50% of the problem. The problem is I'm without sin, but I'm also without righteousness. Justification says you're guilty, and God declares and imputes the righteousness of Christ to your account. What did you do for it? Nothing. But He gave it to you because you believed Him. Do you understand? Because I don't, so I want somebody to write a paper. We have received the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. This should be blowing your theological mind. How does God do this? By faith, not by works. That's chapter 4, first eight verses. By grace, not by law. That's 9 through 17. By resurrection power, not human effort. That finishes off chapter 4. Justification. A legal, it's a forensic, it's a legal declaration that God makes. Remember we talked about three great imputations in Scripture? One, Adam's sin to the, to the whole race. And you're, you're like, okay, what does that mean? Well, that's the second half of chapter 5. Remember when we went through this whole part about there was the first Adam and the second Adam, and the, these guys, you know, what? And you're trying to track with Paul's argument in here. And his argument is basically at the end of chapter 5, the second half of chapter 5, is one person's actions can extend far beyond themselves. And so the sin of Adam made the whole human race die even before the law was given. Why? Because they didn't sin like Adam, they sinned in Adam. The same way that um, Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek when he was still in the loins of, of Abraham. People died up until the law was given, not because they sinned like Adam, but because they sinned in Adam. And it was imputed. How do you know sin was imputed to them? 
Romans 3.23. The wages of sin is death. Where did, the, where did the sin come from? If it didn't come from breaking the law, where did the sin come from? It came from Adam. I died. There's the proof that I sinned. And I sinned in Adam. First great imputation. Second great imputation, the sin of the world onto Christ on the cross. Third great imputation, the righteousness of Christ imputed to the account of everyone who believes in Christ for salvation. Justification. By faith, not by works. By grace, not by law. By resurrection power, not human effort. This is justification. A $5 word that tonight, if you don't, if you've never heard this word before, I want you to walk out with at least $3.50 worth of the five. If you've heard the word before, I want you to walk out with $5. This is an unbelievable word. And your walk with Christ depends on you getting a hold of this concept because its outworking will make all the difference in the world to you. Justification, a legal declaration by which God declares the guilty sinner righteous by imputing Christ's righteousness to his or to her account. God justifies sinners who believe. And what do we learn then in chapter 5? That's the setup for chapter 5. We find out that the justified live forever in God's grace. Let me read the first few verses of chapter 5. And if, don't read along with me, if you will. I just want you to close your eyes and listen. Just close your eyes and I'm going to read it slowly. Just let these words sink in. Therefore, right, first thing you ask when you hear therefore is what is it there for? It's therefore the follow-on to chapter 4 where Paul has been talking about justification. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, justification, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Open your eyes. You and I no longer live where we used to live. Did you hear it? Verse 2, because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place 
of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. This new place in which we now stand. What is someone who has been justified? What do they have? They enjoy a new standing before God. They are at peace with God. They constantly live in the land of His grace. He has put us into a new thing. So when you take Greek for fun, they have a dative. It's called dative. We actually have it in English also, but they have a dative case. This dative case, one of the things it can indicate is sphere, the sphere in which something is. The dative case could say, I am in this sphere right here, and I am not in this sphere right here. My new place of being, living and moving and having my being, is in this sphere over here. That's what's written right here in chapter 5. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. In using this dative case, we used to stand in another sphere. Now God has put us into this sphere, and we're no longer in that sphere. We're in a new sphere. What is true of this sphere? You are at peace with God, and you live with a hope of glory in spite of difficulties, hardship, or suffering. Christian, you have a new standing before God, one that involves having the righteousness of Christ in your account. Justified. Not only your new standing is a justified one. There is no more threat of punishment because the judicial issue of your sin, the guilt that with, uh, went with that, and the condemnation that went with that have been done away with. Done away with. You're no longer in this sphere. He moved you to a new sphere where there are new things that are true about you. Is this making sense to you? I, I know I'm belaboring this thing, but I, I so want you to get this concept. There is no more threat of punishment. The judicial thing between God and you is done, taken care of through our amazing Lord Jesus Christ. You are reconciled. There is no more hostility or anger. This is the relational component between God and us. There's no more hostility or anger in this new sphere in which we live now. No more punishment. No more hostility or anger from God toward us. Done. You and I are fully accepted and lack nothing 
fully accepted and lack nothing. Now, because I am also a mind reader, I know what you're thinking. You think, well, that doesn't sound like me. (laughs) I think I lack a lot of things. (laughs) And I think I'd better get them square before I meet God. He says to you this evening, as he says to me, you lack nothing. You lack nothing. The justified live forever in God's grace. They enjoy a new standing before Him. They also enjoy a new security. So let's talk about the second half of Romans 5 here. Why do I have a new security that I didn't have before? Because of God's love for them as seen through Christ. Remember what he says? You, you've memorized some of these verses. Uh, remember 5.8? I think you do. Oh, let's start in 6. Gosh, it's such good stuff. Verse 6. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people wouldn't be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Do you understand what we were? Helpless? Failures? If you're a sinner, you've missed the mark. Uh... You're enemies of God. You've got to appreciate what Jesus did. Over here is a place where no one likes him or no one wants him. Over here is the person, the the Christian says, everything is made by him, for him, through him, and he causes all things to work together for good. We live and move and have our being over here. Over here, you didn't, and neither did I. Because of God's love, there is a new security. Because of God's work for them as seen through Christ. Because of Christ's accomplishments for His own. The bottom line of the second part of chapter 5, if when you were an enemy... He brought you into his family. How much easier is it for him to keep you forever as a family member? If that's what he did to you when you were an enemy, (laughs) what's he going to do for a family member? Nothing but good. That's his argument in chapter 5. It's easier to keep a friend than to save an enemy. Let me illustrate it another way. Uh, There's a prisoner, and he's standing before the judge, and there is an attorney, and the attorney takes the prisoner up to the judge, and the judge says, Bill, you're guilty of sin. 
In fact, sin upon sin. (laughs) You were born sinful in Adam, and you've done nothing but sin ever since. How do you plead? As a Christian, do you know what you pled? Guilty. Guilty, Your Honor. Right at that point, your advocate stepped up to the bench and wrote something using his own blood to write the note and gave it to his father, who is the judge. The judge opens it and reads it and says, pardoned. He stands up from behind his bench with the advocate, and he walks you through a door behind the bench, and you walk into his family room, and he says, welcome. Welcome, Bill. And there's no doorway behind you anymore. You are now in the family room because of what your advocate, your Savior, has done for you. He has taken care of your debt, and He has brought you into His family. And He says, I can't wait to rule and reign with you. This is what our Lord Jesus has done. We are guilty. Christians get their guilty. And they have no argument and no other plea. I think there's a song about that. But that Jesus bled and died for me. That's my only argument. It's the only thing I have to stand on. He said he would do it. I believed him. And he's taken me from the enemy, the position of an enemy, to the position of a son. And I share in the righteousness of his own son. And I have glory to look forward to as well as ruling and reigning with Christ, whatever that means, forever. It's way easier to keep a friend, to keep a family member than to save an enemy. Let me illustrate this yet one more way to see if I can't continue to communicate this concept to you. How does God see me really before I lived in the land of works? I was a sinner. I was condemned and under punishment for my sins. I was separated from God. I was unclean. My eternal destiny from my perspective was still a little uncertain because I got to get more on the, po- on the positive side than on the negative side. And difficulties, hardships, and suffering must be, if there is a God, must be His punishment. Now, this land that you and I used to live in, the walls of this land are a thousand feet high all around you. There's no way you can take a ladder or try to fly an airplane over it or anything else. You're not, it's not going to work. You cannot get over that wall in the middle. This is the land you and I were born into. 
the land of works. This is the sphere, this is the new land that God has brought you into. You are now a saint and a son or daughter. You are declared innocent and free forever by justification. You have been reconciled to God. Your eternal destiny is secure. And as Paul tells us, difficulties, hardships, and suffering are God's tools to transform us more and more into the image of His dear Son, our Lord Jesus. Works was the land of your first birth. Grace is the land of your second birth. When you were born again, you were justified and you were placed into a new land. You have a new position as justified through Christ's finished work. You live forever in God's grace. You have a new relationship with Him based on His grace, not based on your performance or on my performance. We enjoy a new standing before God. We enjoy a new security in God. We are men and women made new and kept new by Him. You believed that is all you did to get into the new land. You believed God, and He moved you into a new land even before you knew what was over in this land, and now you're in His new land. The truth is this, God has never loved you and set His affection on you because of who you are or because of what you've done. He's always loved you and set His affection on you in spite of who you are and in spite of what you've done. I was teaching this material in Ethiopia a number of years ago, and there was a, there was a group of maybe, there may have been 60, it's kind of hard to tell. And there was a fellow about halfway back, as I'm looking out the audience, he sat right, back, right about there. And he had on, I just remember he had on a red shirt. And I'm teaching through this stuff, and every once in a while I just hear someone going, I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. And I'm thinking, uh, is this guy not paying attention? I don't know. I started thinking, oh my gosh, maybe something's wrong with this guy. Maybe he's hurting. I don't know what's happening. But he just, and every once in a while, he'd just tip his head back. And I'm thinking, I can't wait to get to lunch because I have to ask my host, what is going on with this guy with the red shirt? So it's lunch, and we break. The first thing I did um, some of you have met him, Lemma, Lemma de Geffen. So Lemma, um, I asked Lemma, 
um, tell me what's going on with this fella. And he said, oh, yeah, I probably should have told you ahead of time. <laughs> I'm thinking, that might have been helpful. <laughs> he said, yeah, um, he grew up in a tribe uh, where they killed Christians. And he's killed multiple Christians. But God had mercy on him and saved him. And he was singing hymns because he can't believe this would be true of him. So what he's doing is he's singing. I'm judging him, thinking, what is wrong with you? He's worshiping as he hears this information. Who am I, Lord, that you would save me? I killed your people. What a great, humbling reminder to me. That should be my attitude. You say, well, Bill, have you killed people? <laughs> I've been angry enough with people. But the Lord says it's the same as murder. Yes, I've killed people. And maybe you have too. Do I take this in as an educational exercise or do I take this in as worship? We are men and women made new and kept new by God. What's my point of all this? As a result, in the promised land, there's freedom from spiritual bookkeeping. This is one of the most pervasive, persistent, discouraging, and defeating enemies we bring with us into the promised land. The mindset of spiritual performance or spiritual bookkeeping and the sword we have to use to slay this enemy is the sword of justification. That's why I was laboring over making sure you're clear on this concept because now I need you to pick up the sword of justification and we got to do some business. When we lived in Egypt, as I drew the picture or you saw a picture before, we talked about uh, before we came out of Egypt, by grace, through faith, under blood. I was born of a bookkeeping mindset that went something like this. If I do this, then that will be the result. If I behave rightly, then I'll be accepted and loved. The bookkeeping mindset assumes everything is given or taken on a conditional basis. You're familiar with the bookkeeper, right? They have columns, they have pluses and minuses, and you want to have more in the bank at the end of the day than less. That's kind of how that works. You and I were born with a bookkeeping mindset. Do you remember the book of Job? You remember my song. Oh, you better watch out. Better not cry, better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Remember that? We talked about that. 
Same thing. The bookkeeping mindset assumes everything is given or taken on a conditional basis. If your neighbor is outside of Christ right now, this is how he or she thinks. This is their default. The grace mindset in the promised land goes like this. Since this is true, then that is the result. Since I am accepted and loved, then I can behave in a way that reflects those truths. If then or since then. The two lands. You and I were born with the Egyptian bookkeeping mindset. I'm a relative sinner. I'm not as bad as some people. In fact, let me count them for you. God's acceptance is conditional. I'm faced with the due of ceaseless works from my own self-effort. Difficulties, hardships, and suffering must be God's punishment. Therefore, I must try harder. Don't raise your hand. Don't nod your head. When you take this, remember, when they came out of Egypt, I made, I made note that these were what we would call today saved people. God wasn't killing off unsaved people in the wilderness. What's he doing? He's illustrating, remember Paul said, he's writing these things as warnings to us. So you bring this bookkeeping mindset and you try to go into the promised land and live there and you can't. You find yourself back in the wilderness because when you keep trying the bookkeeping mindset, you wind up in the wilderness, not in the promised land. The promised land, you are a saint and a son or daughter. God's acceptance of you is full, complete, and forever. It's not the do of ceaseless works. It's the done of grace. It's not done through self-effort. It's through the Holy Spirit. Difficulties, hardships, and suffering are God's tools to transform And instead of trying harder, I need to be empowered by the Spirit. Because as soon as I try self-effort, I'm behaving like I did in Egypt. And that won't help me here in this new sphere in which I live. Where does the bookkeeping mindset lead me? Shame? Defeat, fear, hiding, and independence from God. 
This is what the spiritual bookkeeping mindset looks like. There's a gigantic pile of sins right here. They're my sins. Gigantic pile. The Lord is on that side of this big pile. I have a shovel on this side. And I see him looking at me. And I get it. I need to shovel this pile of sins away so that I can draw close to him. Right? That's what I need to do. Shovel, shovel. Problem is, every time I take a shovel full, it seems like there's a new load of, a new bucket full of sins gets dropped on my pile. This is the bookkeeping mindset. What's the grace mindset? The Lord's looking at me, and I want to invite him. Lord, would you come help me do this? Because if you don't help me, it won't work. And he said, you're right. And so he walks around the pile of sins, and he takes hold of the shovel with me. And he says, let me help you. And we begin shoveling, and progress begins being made. My sins no longer keep me from the Lord. That's been taken care of. He's standing on the same side as I am. And he says, if I don't help you, it won't work. But I'm so ingrained with the bookkeeping mindset that I put him on the other side and I've got to somehow do something to get to him. It's not true. It's not true. How do I know if I'm doing spiritual bookkeeping? Do I always need to look like I have it all together? Do I ever choose not to speak the truth and love to someone because of what he or she or others might think of me afterward? Do I spend lots of time trying to, trying to please people? Do I ever feel God is withholding some good thing from me until I perform better? Do I avoid addressing sin for fear of whacking? Meaning God will whack me. If I address somebody else's sin, uh-oh, <laughs> what's God going to do to me? How do I feel about myself when I hear whispers from the enemy about my past shortcomings or even failures? Can I celebrate another's win without jealousy? Does my spiritual temperature rise or fall depending on the amount of affirmation I get? Do I feel unworthy? of God's love. Bookkeeping keeps you and me in the wilderness. God cannot love us more than He already loves us, nor can He love us less. He's never loved you or me because of who we are or because of what we've done. He has always loved us in spite of who we are.
and in spite of what we've done. How do I cross the river? According to Romans 5, God has brought us into a position we didn't deserve, given us a standing of full acceptance we couldn't have earned, joined us into a relationship with Himself we couldn't have started, and ensured that we'll be kept secure no matter what. Romans 8.1. Why do you think Paul includes Romans 8.1? Because he knows how we are. There is therefore now some condemnation. The, the Lord didn't address at justification, and He's saving it up in secret to whack you with when you get to heaven. Oh, that's not what it says at all, is it? There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? Am I making this up? I'm just reading it. Do you believe this? Because we behave as we believe. The first thing that needs to happen is we have to believe differently about our position and our relationship with the Lord. There is no condemnation. So how do I live in the promised land? Where no uncertainty, no fear, no hiding from the light exists. God will never shame me or humiliate me. No scolding will come from His mouth. No punishment will come from His hand. He's never… Do you just need to read this one about a hundred times? He's never disappointed in me. He never rejects me. I'm fully accepted. I'm secure. I have His help. He hasn't and won't withhold one good thing from me. How does God see me, really? As one He's justified. It begins in the mind, Romans 12, 1 through 2. And you remember 12, 1 through 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. What is a sacrifice? It's something that's placed on the altar. In generations past, they had a good concept for this. In fact, you've probably even heard it said that some people at a certain point of their Christian life rededicated their lives to Christ. You've heard this. 
What is this sacrifice? What is Paul encouraging you to do? Dedicate yourself again as a sacrifice. And he says then lots of good stuff happens after that. Tonight may be a night you need to rededicate yourself to the Lord Jesus. I don't know. That's between you and God. Tonight may be that night. You may need to make a new dedication. But remember this. We're free from having to perform for God or for others. Accept it. Count on it. Stand on it. Rest in it. And begin every day with this truth. Begin every day with this truth. Paul also writes in Galatians 2.20 that he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. That's where we have to keep moving. Jesus wants to come to our pile, our side of the pile, and help us. We have to remember to invite him, let him come over and help us. I've told you before, just as I wrap up this lesson, I love Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, there is a great, great interchange between Christian and Apollyon. Apollyon is a, a giant um, demon who tries to bar Christian from making any progress down the road. And so uh, Apollyon and Christian meet up at this kind of this bridge. And Apollyon says to Christian, Thou didst faint at first setting out when thou was almost choked in the slough of despond. Thou didst attempt wrong ways to be rid of thy burden, whereas thou should, shouldst have stayed till thy prince had taken it off. Thou didst sinfully sleep and lose thy choice things. Thou wast also almost persuaded to go back at the sight of the lions. And when thou talkest of thy journey and of what thou hast seen and heard, thou art inwardly desirous of vain glory in all that thou sayest or doest. Zapolion speaking to Christian. Christian now responds. This Christian is living in Romans 5. He is living in the promised land right now. Christian, all this is true and much more which thou hast left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive but besides these infirmities possessed me in thy country, for there I sucked them in and I have groaned under them, been sorry for them and have obtained pardon of my prince. Apollyon is now in a grievous rage. I am an enemy to this prince. I hate his person, his laws, and people. I am come out on purpose to withstand thee. Christian says, Apollyon, be aware, beware of what you do, for I am in the king's highway. 
the way of holiness, therefore take heed to yourself. Then Apollyon straddled quite over the whole breadth of the way. Apollyon, I am void of fear in this matter. Prepare thyself to die, for I swear by my infernal din that thou shalt go no farther. Here will I spill thy soul. Then Apollyon, espying his opportunity, began to gather up close to Christian, and wrestling with him gave him a dreadful fall. And with that, Christian's sword flew out of his hand. Then said Apollyon, I am sure of thee now. And with that, he had almost pressed him to death, so that Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was fetching of his last blow, thereby to make a full end of this good man, Christian nimbly reached out his hand for his sword and caught it, saying, Rejoice not against me, me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. Micah 7, 8. With that, he gave him a deadly thrust, which made him give back as one that had received his mortal wound. Christian, perceiving that, made it him again, saying, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Romans 8, 37. And with that, Apollyon spread forth his dragon wings, dragon's wings and sped him away, that Christian saw him no more. So when the battle was over, Christian said, I will here give thanks to him that hath delivered me out of the mouth of the lion, to him that did help me against Apollyon. Christian understands who he is, and when he was attacked with his failures from before, he said all of these things are true and many more besides because he knows whose he is, and he knows the land in which he lives, and he knows the king of that land, and he knows him so well that he doesn't have to fear or fret. He approaches everything with the Word of God, and that is his sword. Lord, uh, I tried to communicate your word, and I pray that your spirit would do uh, the superior job. Refresh our minds with justification. Refresh our spirits with justification. Help us to believe what is written here, to believe it more than our, uh, our feelings, to believe it more than what we've thought about it in the past, to believe it more than, than anything. Help us, please, to believe your word and to say your word is truth, and it is true of me. Would you please do that in each one of our lives this week? And as we are tempted to drop back into a spiritual bookkeeping mindset, would you remind us of these truths, these stories, these um, pictures, so that we, like Christian, would be able to press forward uh, in the King's highway, the highway of holiness. We ask you to do that, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. See you on June 4th. Not next week. 
June 4th. I will not be responsible or apologetic if you show up next week. <laughs>